Hi, I'm Adam Howard. I'm the hand of Darth Vader and the handwriting of Bart Simpson. When I started, there weren't any computers at all. In 1980, in Australia, there was nothing. We made everything by hand. It was cell animation, and it was graphic design and illustration. I was there at the very beginning on the Quantel paintbox. I animated the first opening title sequence in the Southern Hemisphere, designed on paintbox, and then we animated on the Cray XMP. There were two jobs at Sonic Vision at the time that were being done. Ours was the second one in line, and the one immediately before us was the Dire Straits music video, Money for Nothing. Yeah. Rushes did that. I yeah, Rushes did that. Yeah, but they were they were animating it on craze all over the world. I think there were seven or eight craze around the world. There's a, a company called Mini Museum, and they sell like microscopic pieces of things. Like they'll sell you a two millimeter square of the gold foil from Apollo 11 and stuff like that. And you get them in little boxes. It's a really cool site. But one of the things I bought was one of the processors from the Cray XMP that was in Boston, which animated my job back in 1982. So yeah, I started like right at the beginning. So I've seen the entire progression of CG from nothing to this. I'm Adam Howard. I grew up in Melbourne, Australia, very long way away from Hollywood, but movies and TV were my passion. My mom said to me, you're never going to get anywhere watching the Idiot Box TV. Fortunately, she was wrong. I grew up in Melbourne. I went to a school called Scotch College in Melbourne, which was my high school kind of equivalent with the United States. It was a very academically based school, not really up my alley all the way, but I went there because my dad had gone there and my brother was there as well. In my third year there, the art department hired this guy called Rick Routon. Rick had been a commercial artist and an illustrator and a designer and had done bizarre things like taught prisoners in the prison system in Australia and taught them art. And he came in and on his first day, he said to all of us, I'm just going to let you know, I don't have a curriculum. I want you to tell me what you want to learn and I'll make it happen. But everybody had different interests. Some kids wanted to do pottery, some wanted to do oil painting. I wanted to do animation. So Rick made it happen. Rick became my greatest supporter in the school. In year 11, he showed up at my parents' house one Saturday afternoon. I answered the door and I freaked out because I've got, oh God, there's a teacher at the door. What have I done wrong? And he came in and he said, it's okay. I just want to talk to your mom and dad about something. We all went and sat in the living room and he said, speak to my parents, I need you two to understand something. Adam has a gift that must be pursued. He's an incredible artist and given the right tools and the right experience and opportunity, he can turn this into a lifetime career. If you make him do year 12 at Scotch, he's going to crash and burn because he's just not built for that system. But if you let me spend the next few months helping him prep a portfolio, I want you to take him out of the school and put him into this orientation program at Chisholm Institute, which is now Monash University in Melbourne, and have him do that as a prep so that we can get him into the graphic design course at Chisholm. And to my absolute amazement, mum and dad both went, okay. And so Rick and I spent the next few months prepping this portfolio of art. I applied and I got in and I went and I did that course. Got to do my first real hands-on animation at that point. I did a five a graphic design degree that gave me my grounding in art but you know the real training began after that once I got my first job I was lucky enough to get a work experience at the ABC Australian Broadcasting Corporation and in the graphic design department I was there for one month and after that month I went back every Friday after school put a note on everybody's desk and I said here's my name here's my number the second the job becomes available give me a call and I kept on doing that to the point where this guy Bruno Liepen who was the head of the art department more just to shut me up than anything else. So Luke's going to give you a job. I did a couple of little jobs in advertising first, doing design work on some pretty incredible projects, and then went to work at ABC and it began. In those days, again, there were no computers. Everything was handmade. And I was working for a guy called Gary Emery, who was 
one of the top 10 graphic designers in the world at the time. It ran a company called Memory Vincent Design. And it was one of the first times that I learned this thing, which became invaluable to me later on. So you got to come up with the right idea the first time. You don't have a chance to come up with 10 and pick whatever works best. you got to come up with the idea. And so in the mornings, we would have a briefing. And like an hour later, he would come by our desk and say, okay, what's the idea? He would then obviously put his polish on it and you'd finish the job. One of the jobs that I worked on, and I'm only allowed to give very generic information about this because I had to sign the National Secrets Act, was designing the signage for the new Parliament House in Australia. Wow. We were privy to stuff that I will not be allowed to talk about ever. We had armed guards that stood by the safe. Guards would come up to us in the morning and they would take the plans out of the safe and roll it out on the desk and we'd be allowed to look at them but not touch them. And then at the end of the day, they'd roll them up and put them back in the safe. And then I went to ABC. The first job I had was working on ABC News doing the weather. My parents were watching the news. They would watch the weather and go, oh, this is really good information. It's so, it's so accurate coming from the Bureau of Meteorology. But we would literally just get the barometric pressures information that they've given us and we would just trace over that with a piece of acetate shoot it on a down shooter and load it into this very primitive computer and it was just two colors that was the earliest computer that i had the opportunity to work on and it was garbage and this is 1980 one of the good things about abc television in melbourne was that if you wanted to you could take the opportunity to learn any part of the process there were always open arms welcoming you to any department in my earlier years i worked in theater at melbourne theater company and i was an actor and i did a lot of behind the scenes stuff as well. I did lighting and sound, especially sound, which I love doing because I'm a musician as well, creating environments with sound. When I was 16, my dad was a member of parliament in Australia. He introduced me to this guy called Harold Friedman. Harold had been appointed as the state artist for Victoria. He was given this mandate to create major works of art to go around Victoria. He was an, a renowned oil painter and had done some massive murals, one at Flinders Street Station in Melbourne train station, which was about 170 feet long, absolutely massive and about five stories high. I got to go and work with those guys as their apprentice on a mural that was made of the fire brigade building in the center of Melbourne, which was done entirely as a mosaic. It's about 70 feet wide and five stories high. It's two and a half million individually hand-cut pieces of glass, most of which I cut. Certainly 80% of the fire in that mural I made. It went up in 1983, I think. It just got classified by the National Trust as a national treasure. It's protected for life. And it was all about the illusion of a pixel. When you were looking at the work up close and you had pieces of glass that were like this big to you know this big the higher you went up the five-story height the bigger the pieces had to be so that from the ground the illusion was they were all the same size we had mirrors in the ceiling that were reflecting the desk and then another mirror in front of us on a 45 degree angle that was reflecting that mirror so that we could see the whole thing Harold painted the whole thing in oil paint as a guide for us. And then we traced the painting, scaled it up, and then turned it around backwards. And we had to do the whole thing backwards because you glue the glass onto paper. And when it's all finished, you get the paper and you set the glass into cement on the wall. And then you soak the paper off. So everything you do, you have to do backwards. That was the really early days of of getting started. I was working on a number of different shows. I ended up becoming the main title designer for the comedy unit at ABC. And so we were doing all these comedy shows. Everything was handmade. There was no computer animation, computer graphics of any kind at all. We did a comedy series and we would need something like a joke album cover or something or a joke book. I would make physically make the whole book and prop and whatever it needed to be. And I was working on this show called Countdown, which was the Australian version of American Bandstand. This guy, Ian Meldrum, whose nickname is Molly, he's known all over Australia as Molly Meldrum, was the host of the show. Molly had been one of the founders of the recording industry in Australia. He knew everybody. 
worldwide to the point where when people were doing concert tours in Australia, part of their contract was that they would appear on Countdown and perform. We had Madonna and David Bowie and Tina Turner and Phil Collins and all these incredible people. And this was one of my first jobs in the business was working with all of those people. I was working on Countdown and a number of other comedy series and still doing the news and current affairs and weather occasionally. There were about nine of us, I think, in the graphics department at that point. Keep in mind, I'm like 17. One day, the art director, this guy Bruno Leapen, called me into his office and he said, I need you to come in and sit down and close the door. And I thought, oh, great. I'm going to lose my job. And he looked at me and he said, no, you're not going to lose your job. That's not what this is about. And he said, you know that big box that's been sitting out in the hallway for a few days? And I said, yeah. And he says, the reason I'm asking you to come in and close the door is because when I tell you, I'm going to tell you, we're just going to laugh our asses off because this is really funny. They say it's a computer that does graphics. We were cracking up. He said, look, you have the least program commitments out of anybody in the department. Why don't you just take it out, spend a day putting it together. When it's a piece of rubbish, let me know and we'll get rid of it. I got together with the engineering guys and they assembled the whole thing. I was presented with this tablet, which was about three foot square, massive thing, really heavy. There was a pen and it was like a steel pen. It was not like this, but it was steel and it had a steel cable on it. And there was a massive hard drive rack next to us, which was screaming these Winchester discs which stored an unbelievably massive amount of data, which was 10 megs. It was really loud and noisy. It was one of the first systems, if not the first system. It was a Quantel paint box, what became known as the classic paint box. At that time, there were only about six of them in the world. They didn't have anybody to demo it, so they just said, just plug it in and see what you think. My brain just went... There was a connection between me and this machine. I put the pen to the tablet and the cursor appeared on the screen and I play piano and I could read sheet music. And so looking up here, but working down here was something that I understood. And so as a musician, my brain connected to that. As an artist, the cursor just became my hand. I was drawing on the thing in minutes. It had a thing called the sequencer. It allowed you to paint multiple frames and put them into this tiny little sequence with 20 frames, but you could do a little loop. I think the very first thing I ever animated on Paintbox was a radar with a little green thing spinning. I did that on the first day. My brain just exploded. I could see what this thing was potentially capable of doing. Keep in mind, it was designed to do news graphics, still frames that were then keyed behind the newsreaders or the box that went over the newsreader's shoulder. I went to Bruno, it's like seven o'clock in the morning, and I said to him, okay, this time you need to sit down. I said to him, I'm 17. I'm the youngest one here. I have the least experience of anybody here. I am the very last person you should be talking to about a multi-million dollar commitment. But I have never been more clear about anything that I've ever said in my life as what I am about to say to you now. This is the next major industrial revolution staring us in the face. And just like the steam engine revolutionized industry, this is going to revolutionize our lives. Maybe one day there's going to be something like this in everything we do. We've got to jump on this bandwagon. We've got to do it right now. Because if we don't, in a couple of years' time, somebody else will have and we'll be dead and gone. Buy it. So we went into the room and he sat down next to me. In 10 minutes, I showed him to be able to draw a mask like you would put down frisket paper for airbrushing. And you could draw a mask and paint under it and around it and then get rid of that and do something else. It was amazing. And he looked at it and he went, oh, wow, this isn't a piece of rubbish. Man. Okay, well, yeah, okay, show me more. And so I spent another 10 minutes showing him that. And he says, okay, look, I've got some meetings we're going to go to today. Um, go back to work, forget this now. So we would meet at 8 o'clock in the morning for the news, talk about what we were going to put on the news at 7 o'clock that night. 
worked my whole day on the news and at about 10 to 7, we were getting ready to go live to air with the news. Keep in mind, when it cut to a graphic, say, a map of Australia, it was literally a graphic sitting on a stand with a camera pointing at it. It was just real artwork. And Bruno came in and he flicked me in the back of the head and says, okay, it's done. They're going to buy it. And I just looked at him and I went, what? And he goes, yeah, it, it was really impressive. And here's the thing, you're the only one who knows how to use it, so you're running the department. As a 17-year-old. Yeah, along with all the other designers in the department, we all learned it very quickly, but I was the main one on it. Maybe between the nine of us, we could get six or seven graphics done each day. You had like a photograph of Reagan and Gorbachev. Well, you had to find those photographs, cutting things literally with a scalpel, cutting photos out of Time magazine and Life magazine, pasting them up and airbrushing shadows underneath them, rubbing down letterset lettering, and that was our graphics. Very few graphics were capable of being put together each day. In a period of about two weeks, we went from that few graphics to about 50 graphics a day. Wow. One of the great things that we realized was that you could save these images and you could use them again with the old graphics. Once we glued a picture of Reagan down on a piece of paper, we couldn't peel it up and use it again without destroying it. The way that we would present it to the newsroom was a system called DLS, which was the digital library system. DLS provided the newsroom with a stack of images that were all in numerical order. They would just hit a button and graphic one would come up, hit another one, the second one come up, and they were all assembled in that stack in the order that they needed to be presented for the show one night news goes to air at seven o'clock and at five to seven the dls died and everybody went into a complete white panic screaming you know you fix this thing fix this thing and i remember this guy walter boston who was the director of the news at that time it's amazing it's like 40 years ago and i still remember all these names walter was screaming at us over the talk back you get this thing on air now or you're all dead i said to somebody in the room you know all the graphics are stored in paintbox we could try going live from paintbox rather than the dls the library display in paintbox displayed like 12 images on the screen i thought that's fine i'll just go and find each one while we're doing the link to a story we'll find the graphics then we'll put them up and that'll be great what i didn't keep in mind was that to display one of those 12 screen would go (laughs) it would draw it on it would draw it on line line by by line. line The first graphic came up and I'm just dying. The screen, it was on like page three and I had to go through 36 images before I found the one that I needed. Anyway, it worked. The closest one that we ever got to was literally as the image hit the bottom scan line, they cut to it. The whole graphics department's just sitting there in the back of the room watching me sweat bullets. And I got home that night and I said, so how was the news tonight? And I went, oh, no, it was okay. Why? No idea the hell we went through. You established a paradigm that held up until now. There's still live graphics done directly yeah. from the paint box onto the screen. Yeah, exactly. As a result of that was naming conventions. We realized that we could give each thing its own distinct name. We could go into a text library, which was much faster than looking for the visual library, and go and find them that way. We started the whole concept of naming conventions. The funny thing was that we're all so young. The next oldest one in the department was probably about 25, and then the oldest one was about 50. All we were doing was doing our job. We didn't realize that every time we put pen to tablet, we were kind of setting the groundwork for a brand new industry. It's been incredible to see the industry develop over the last 40 years. For our listeners, it's really hard for people now to understand that the idea of putting pen on a tablet 
and seeing something up on the screen was revolutionary at the time. Oh, yeah. Photoshop yeah. did not exist. I was using a system called Via Video right. at a very similar time. It only had 16 colors to work with. Exactly. One of the things that made the Quantel paint box so revolutionary is it had 16 million, million colors. colors. You could do gradations of colors, make it look like airbrushing. Yeah. Uh, the earlier paint systems like Via Video looked very primitive and jagged. Uh, apart from things like masking techniques and all that stuff, the airbrush was absolutely astounding. To be able to mimic airbrush and chalk and pencil out of this tablet and pen was incredible. When people ask me how I choose people when I'm hiring a crew, if I'm choosing artists, I tend to still choose people who have a strong artistic background rather than just a digital one. I'm just working on a piece at the moment. It's supposed to look like metal. It's a lot of airbrushing. If you've used a real airbrush, you know the multitude of styles and techniques that you can create from that brush. But if the only thing that you know an airbrush as is what comes out of the button when you hit it on the screen, you don't know how to use an airbrush. Back in those days, the tool was very limited. If you knew what a real one could do, you could work out ways to cheat the limited tool to do what you wanted it to do. And when I was a little kid, one of the things that got me inspired into what I do now was magic and illusion. Everything we do is illusion. And people look at things and they believe it. And if they believe it, we succeeded. Years and years ago, I was working on Star Trek. I got the amazing opportunity to speak with Linwood Dunn. And I'd been trying to get in touch with him. Dan Curry, who was the visual effects producer and supervisor on the show, knew him. And so he gave him my number. And so I'm at work one night and the phone rings. Linwood Dunn here. I nearly fell off the phone. Lynn was very old at that point. But he said, I can only talk for a little bit because I'm going to a symphony meeting tonight. He was ancient and still active. We ended up talking for about three hours. I said to him at one point, look, Lynn, if I'm ever going to ask anybody this question, it's got to be you because you invented my job with the Acme Dunn optical printer and optical composites. What's the one guiding principle that you would recommend for a long career in visual effects? And he said, oh, that's easy, my boy. He said, you spend your entire life doing shots that no one notices. <laughs> and I said, okay, why? And he said, because, my boy, you only have one purpose in this job. And that's to serve the story. The story is everything. If you do a shot and the audience says, wow, what a cool effect, you failed because you made it about you and not about the story. If it just happens and they accept it and they go on with the story, you succeeded. He said, be invisible your entire life and you'll be around forever. That's awesome. Back then, even though Paintbox was an incredibly sophisticated for its time box, it still had many limitations. And so our challenge was to make the systems do what the makers didn't even know that it could do. I had worked on a main title animation for a music video show called Rock Arena, this fantastic indie music show, which was secondary to Countdown. Countdown was like rock and roll, pop music, everything. But host of Countdown, Molly Meldrum was the guy who really discovered ABBA encouraged Michael Jackson to go out on his own. That was the kind of level of people that we were dealing with on Countdown, but on Rock Arena, it was a lot of up-and-coming bands and independent bands. I designed a main title for them where I did all the prep work in Paintbox. We had the opportunity to do it as a, I don't know, what the, we got this, what's this new, 3D? What is that? There's this company down in South Melbourne that's got a big 3D computer. Why don't we do it there? This company was called Sonic Vision. Sonic Vision had one of the seven or eight Cray XMP supercomputers in the world. They at that time were just finishing up the Dire Straits music video Money for Nothing. And it was being animated on all the craze around the world just so they could get it all done in time to go on MTV.
I got to just jump in here for a second and, and explain. Yeah. The Cray was the machine that was rendering it. The work was done on the Bosch FGS 4000. Exactly, yes. Yeah, exactly. So we had artists who built everything for us on the Bosch, and then it was all rendered on the Cray. They finished the Money for Nothing music video, and the next day we moved in and we did the Rock Arena main title, which I designed as a fly-through around Melbourne, around the city and past the tram cars and through the gardens. It's like 1982. It's very early. I think there's a version of it online somewhere on YouTube. It was the very first time we did a 3D animation. About a year later, I was working on a TV series called The Jerry Connolly Show. One of my great inspirations at that point was Peter Gabriel's music video, Sledgehammer, which Nick Park and the guys at Artman had put together. They spent seven days shooting Peter Gabriel under a down shooter with pieces of glass over the top of him so they could animate all the clay. I wanted to do something like that. We had no budget for cell animation. We had no budget for claymation. I said, well, why don't we animate it on paintbox? And everybody, including Quantel, said, well, you can't animate it on paintbox. I said, what do you mean? Of course we can. And they said, no, our system doesn't do that. I said, no, I know that, but your system does full frame video images. What's animation? Why don't we just use it as an art tool? We'll lay it all off to one inch tape and then we'll go into an edit bay and we'll cut all the frames together and hopefully we'll have animation that works. Yet again, Bruno said, great idea. You do that. So I spent about a month. I went down to the photo studio at ABC with our photographer and Jerry Connolly, the star of the show, and we shot all the images of him like moving his head around, which we shot with a motor drive on the camera. We printed them out as color photos. I put them on a down shooter and I scanned every photo into the paint box to build the animated sequence of him. And then I animated all the pieces around him of like planets and all kinds of stuff happening. It was kind of a combination of Sledgehammer and the Mission Impossible theme music. We wrote the music for it. I was involved in that as well. We did the first 2D animation in the Southern Hemisphere for that show. We all of a sudden realized if we've got enough time, we can do anything with this thing. So I was at ABC for about four and a half years, and then I was asked to go and work for a company called Armstrong Audiovisual AAV in South Melbourne, which was the biggest post-production facility in the Southern Hemisphere at the time. Very large company, a large recording studio called Metropolis Audio with Madonna and Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, all kinds of people recorded there. Joined a small little group called AAV Options, set up to do visual effects, animator, designer, director, supervisor, everything, one-man department, working on some very primitive systems as well as paintbox. Downstairs from where we were, there was a little company called the Electric Paintbrush Company. Peter Doyle was working there, and Peter went on to be the senior colorist for all the Harry Potter films. Pete and I ended up working in tandem on a few things, and we worked on in excess music videos like Kick. At AAV, we did a children's show called Round the Twist, which is kind of a cult TV series in Australia now. We just kept on pushing the envelope and creating visual effects for anybody who needed them. But it was all 2D. It was all hand-painted on Paintbox, which at that point was a V-series Paintbox, which was the next one up. All of a sudden, we had a pen that was wireless. Wow. The tablet was considerably smaller and lighter. It didn't weigh as much as my car anymore. The room that I got to work in was very quiet and dark and perfect for what I was doing. During the course of working for AAV, there was a remake of Mission Impossible TV series being made in Queensland made by Paramount, but shot in Australia. All of the post-production work was being done at the Post Group in Hollywood. We had a producer from Paramount who was working with us in Melbourne. This is 1989. I'd been planning a trip to the States just because I wanted to go see the States. And so I was talking to him and he said, well, you should go see a few people while you're there. I'll, I'll hook you up with the guys at Paramount. 
I came to LA, went to the post group, and I met a bunch of people at the post group who were doing that show. But my real thing was Star Trek The Next Generation. My ultimate dream was I want to move to Los Angeles and I've got three things that I want to do on my bucket list. I want to work on Star Trek The Next Generation. I want to work on MacGyver and I want to work on Star Wars. A man whose dreams actually came true. Amazingly, yes. Star Trek was in production, so that was a possibility. MacGyver was in production, so that was a possibility. So Star Wars was never going to happen. The first three films had come out and that was it, as far as everybody knew, except George. I came here in 89. The first interview I had was with Richard Edlund at Boss Films. Oh, wow. His assistant said he's only going to be able to give you a couple of minutes. We're shooting Solar Crisis downstairs right now. We discovered we had a whole bunch of things in common, and we talked for two and a half hours. One of the thrills for me of that day was that the production designer on Solar Crisis was Sid Mead. I idolized the work in Blade Runner. He said, would you like to meet him? Yes! You have a photograph of you and Sid on your IMDb page. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. Many years later, we ran up to the art department. And there was an, a drawing board there with one pencil sitting on it. The stool was almost still spinning. He had just left the building. I said, do you mind? So I sat in the chair and I held the pencil, getting the essence of Sid. Unbeknownst to me at the same time, there were people working on that show like Pat McClung, Terry Wendell, all kinds of people who all ultimately became dear friends of mine. I knew their names from credits, but I didn't know the people. Anyway, so Richard says this new kind of digital thing is going to be the way that it's going to go. If you do want to come back, he said, come back to Los Angeles, I'll give you a job. Great. Richard Edlund told me that. It's real. I went back to Australia and sold everything. And my ex and I just moved the following year. We came here in 1990. I called Richard and couldn't get in touch with him and spoke to somebody else who said, what are you talking about? Digital's a flash in the pan. It's always going to be film opticals. It's state of the art. That's the way it is. No, you don't have a job. I was kind of flabbergasted by that. I was staying with a friend of mine who was working on Star Trek, who was my first initial contact over here for Mission Impossible. He said, well, keep on doing interviews and we'll see what happens. I said to myself, if I can't get a job in three months, I'll get the message and I'll go back to Australia. Not realizing that people go to Los Angeles and spend 20, 30 years trying to get the job they want. I was just very young and very naive. Three months in, he was at a party for ABC and he came back to the house that night and he says, okay, you have an interview tomorrow at one o'clock at ABC. You're going to go to it because they want to hire you. So I went to ABC and Barbara Eddy, who ran the on-air promotions division, hired me as not only a paintbox artist, but a Harry artist, which was the Quantel compositing system, which used paintbox as its base, but it had a whole three-bin system where you could put live clips. Getting stuff into the system was very hard. Getting stuff out of the system wasn't that easy, but it became easier over time. I became one of the three Harry artists at ABC, American Broadcasting Corporation. All this time, I was still wishing that I could work on Star Trek. I wanted to work at the Post Group, and I was trying to meet Rich Thorne, who ran the Post Group. He was just impossible to track down. From back when I was in Australia, the main contact I had at Paramount was a guy called Fred Chandler, who ran post-production at Paramount. I thought that he would be somebody who could really help me get to Star Trek. I'd been talking with Fred for a couple of years. I called him. He said to me, look, Adam, I, I got to tell you, he said, look, you're a really good guy, and I'm sure your work's fantastic, but the reality is you're in Australia, and I'm in Los Angeles, and you're probably never going to be here, and so this is ultimately kind of a waste of time. So let's just stop talking now. And I said to him, well, actually, I'm calling from a mobile phone. I'm on Melrose. I can be there in five minutes. <laughs> and Fred went, oh, that changes everything. So come to the main gate. There'll be a drive-on for you. Come into Paramount. I drove to Paramount, which for me was the very first time I'd ever actually been to the studio. And I drove up to the gate and they went, Mr. Hammond, welcome to Paramount. I was like, <laughs> so went to Fred's office and he said, when you come in, there are going to be about 10 people in my waiting room 
They've been waiting for a couple of hours. I just don't have time to talk to them. He said, walk straight through the room, come straight into my office, and I guarantee you they will all get up and scream and yell and complain. Don't worry about that. Just come on through. So I walked into the office, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I walked into his room, and he's like this little guy, and he was on multiple phone calls at the same time, pre-cell phones, the big old Lucide desk phones. He was yelling at people and hanging up on the mall, and he goes, right now, who are you? And I said, Adam Howard. He goes, oh, yeah, okay. Now, what do you want? I said, I want to meet Rich Thorne at the Post Group about Star Trek. He says, Okay, do you have a reel? Yes, absolutely. Would you like to see it? Nope, don't have time. Just sit there and wait. And he picked up the phone and he called Rich's assistant and he said, Karen, I have this guy sitting in front of me from Australia with the best demo reel I have ever seen in my life. Rich will see him tomorrow at one o'clock. Hang up. And he looked at me and he goes, okay, you're all set. And he goes, that's how it happens. Don't fuck it up. And <laughs> the next day I went and I saw Rich. Played in the reel. He liked it. And then he said, look, I'm really sorry. I can't hire you. I thought, my God, it's taken me two years to get to the point of being able to sit down and meet with you. And you can't hire me? Why? And he said, I'm, I'm sorry. I just can't. I, I can't hire you. But it's really good meeting you. And thank you for you know, making the effort. And um, you know, maybe we'll meet again some other day. I was pretty devastated. Then got the job at ABC for seven months doing movie of the week graphics. Dave Wong designed the main titles, but I animated the main titles of the um, Henson series, Dinosaurs. The egg falling and cracking open and the big Ben-Hur kind of text. I, I illustrated all of that stuff. So I'm sitting with my boss one night, seven months in, and the phone rang. He goes, Adam Howard? He goes, yeah. Rich Thorne, can you talk? I said, uh, not really. Uh, can I just switch you to another phone? So I went into the machine room and I picked up the phone and I said, hi. He said, look, I know it kind of freaked you out before. I apologize for that. I'm sorry that I couldn't hire you at the post group. I was planning on leaving the post group and I'm starting my own company, Digital Magic. And I want you to come and work with me there on wow. Star Trek. The lead animator on Star Trek was a guy called Steve Price. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Very I know Steve Price. He was around Jumanji. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Until he passed away, Travis. Until he passed away. Yeah, 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 yeah. Steve was amazing. I ended up leaving that Friday and starting the following Monday at Digital Magic as Steve's assistant on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was animating the final episode of season four, which was a cliffhanger episode. I spent one week working with Steve, just watching him. He animated all the phases and like that in the show. And he left. He left on a Friday. And on the Monday, Rich walked in and he closed the door and he said, so... It's been a rough weekend. Sid's left. He's gone up to work at ILM. He'd gone up to work on Hook. He's not coming back. And Paramount are very worried because they've got a cliffhanger episode and they don't know what they're going to do. We've had a very, very stressful weekend and it's been very, very bad. And I said, oh, that's that's just fantastic. So what's the good news? Because the good news is you're it. <laughs> so after one week of watching Steve, I became the lead animator on Star Trek Next Generation. As a fine artist, I had a real thing about reflections and shadows and minute detail. The stuff that Steve did was great, totally worked for the show, but I felt I could make it a bit better. And so I went to the visual effects producers and I said, look, what's a phaser? A phaser is a light source. If you get a phaser going near somebody, what's it going to do? And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, it's going to cast light on them and it's going to cast shadows behind them and across their faces. And I want to be able to do that and just make these things feel more real. And they said, well, this is your first day on the job. You want to do that? Yeah, why not? And they said, okay, well, if you can do it in the same amount of time that Steve did his, you're on. So I stayed that entire weekend, worked out different ways of, instead of hand animating every single frame, I built loops of various layers that made the phaser up. I drew a thing that we ultimately called the pom-pom. It was a hot white center that graded out to nothing. And that became something I developed as a technique on Star Trek for when a light source would turn on quickly. 
and it would just be there for one frame. And it was just something just to lift the blacks a little bit, but just at the center and give your eye that little crunch that you get when you're hit by light source. So I came back the following Monday and showed the guys, it was Rob Legato and Dave Takamura and Ron Moore and Gary Hustle and Dan Curry. They all looked at it and they went, oh, wow. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, go for it. And so if you look at the final episode of season four and the first episode of season five, there's a bit of a difference. I tried to not have a stark difference, but over season five's first few episodes, we just ramped into the new work. Amazingly, later on that year, I had two envelopes arrive on my desk one day. I opened the first one and it said, you've been nominated for an Emmy wow. for Star Trek for an episode called Conundrum. I was just dumbfounded because I'd always just wanted to go and stand outside the Emmys and watch them. And I opened the other envelope and it said, congratulations, you've been nominated for an Emmy. And I thought, oh, they messed up. They sent me. To... And then I read it more carefully. Yeah, matter of time. Exactly. We went and we won them both. First year in the States, I won two Emmys for Star Trek, which was just beyond a dream come true. The funny thing about that night, we were going to go to the governor's ball afterwards for dinner. And the guy said, no, let's not go to that. Let's go down to the Parkway Grill. There's a great grill in Pasadena. We had 10 stretch limos that all pulled into the driveway that Paramount had provided for us very graciously. We were getting out of the cars and Dan Curry looked at me and goes, okay, so here's the thing. You're the new boy, so you get to go get a table for 20 people. So I'm in my tux and I walked in and I went up to the maitre d' and I said, uh, I'd like a table for 20, please. And he just laughed at me. And he said, oh, come on. He said, it's Emmy night. You can't get a table for 20 people. Look at this place. And the place was packed with people. He said, nice tux. Were you at the awards tonight? I said, yeah, I was. And I'm standing there with my hand behind the back, just like very respectful. And he goes, well, no, you were good. Okay, and I hope you had a good time. And I said, I had a wonderful time. Thank you. And I said, it's such a pity that you um, can't help us. And he goes, no, I did not a chance. You'll have to come back another time. And he turned around to walk away. And I went, you know, it's such a pity that you can't help me. <laughs> and I had an Emmy in each hand and I sat them on his desk and he just went, um, <laughs> are they real? And I said, yes. He goes, oh my God, are they from tonight? I said, yes. He goes, are they yours? Yes. He goes, stay right there. And I watched him go around the table, go, check, 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 out. They cleared a bunch of people out of the restaurant almost instantly, and they put a table for 20 right through the center of the restaurant. And I went out to Dan, and I said, okay, we're set. He goes, how? We've got a table. And so we had 20 Emmys lined up down the center of the table, which is pretty amazing. It was a good night. And then, you know, ultimately, Star Trek was incredibly good to me over the years. I ended up working on Star Trek Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, Enterprise, First Contact, Insurrection, did all the weaponry for all the races and all the shows, all the medical beams, anything like that. Anytime a ship exploded, I did those things. We kind of changed the way that looked, too. I remember working with Gary Hustle one. There's a famous episode of Deep Space Nine where this great little ship was introduced the first time, the Defiant. And there's a shot of the Defiant, this thing roaring out of the background past camera. It had to be blazing gunfire. And I said to Gary, what does it need to be? And he goes, I don't know, just make it cool. I designed these photon torpedo cannons that were just machine guns at the front of the things, <laughs> sending out photon torpedoes. It was 20 minutes that it took to animate that. It became Star Trek lore. And then when a few years later, somebody got all this fan mail saying, that's not what it looks like. It's supposed to look like this. So Star Trek was incredibly good to me. I got nine nominations over the years and I won four. 
pretty amazing. When you were doing that work, were you still on the paint box with Harry? Or had you moved on to something more 3D? There was no 3D at the time. 3D came in for the first time on Star Trek Voyager. The first time we ever had a 3D ship was on Voyager. Before that, everything was miniature. So the miniatures were all shot at MSG in North Hollywood, up by Universal. We did an episode of Deep Space Nine called Way of the Warrior. Gary Hustle was shooting it and supervising it. He rest in peace. Lovely, lovely guy. We had to have all these Klingon bird of prey armadas of ships flying. And so we had the big bird of prey miniature which was about six feet long, which had been built by ILM for Star Trek, the motion picture. They shipped that down to us. And we were using that for all the big close-ups. Then we had a small one that we shot multiple times for mid-ground behind that. And then we started going to plastic kits. Judy Elkins, the lovely person who was working on the show, she had a whole team of people who were making the Ertle plastic kit, clean on Bird of Praise and painting them up and putting like reflective tape on them and making them look great. We realized the stage at MHG wasn't even deep enough to be able to get the really far background ones and we couldn't scale the move effectively either. So they got Hallmark Christmas decorations of the Birds of Prey and just stuck them on sticks. We had entire fleets of them flying in the background and they're just Christmas tree decorations. But that show got an Emmy nomination because, you know, the scale of the shots became massive. Until that show, this was kind of in deference to the Disney Nine Old Men, we had nine big explosions, stock explosions that had been shot years earlier by the guys on the show. And we used as generic explosions. We would use little pieces of explosions and like little pieces of curlicue off the side and some of the hot core. A ship would be there it would cut off and there'd be an explosion. And I said to Gary, you know, we should try and do something cooler. Let's actually get debris flying out. And so they started shooting debris passes and I animated stuff coming out of it. And all of a sudden ships were able to break apart in slow motion and just make it a little more dramatic. And so we kind of changed the way that was being done. It was all 2D at that point. Voyager, they started introducing 3D elements. I think we had one 3D element in Next Generation. It was very early days and CG was still just beginning. There were shows like Stargate SG-1, upcoming shows. There was a show called Sequest that had a CG submarine. There were some things that CG could do okay for TV, but there were many things that it was not going to be capable of doing for many, many years. We were just laying the groundwork. One of the biggest films I worked on in Los Angeles was Titanic. Titanic was revolutionary in so many ways. It was the first time that anybody really saw like full-on CG shots that were 100% CG and people really believed them. Digital Domain was doing beautiful work. They had built miniature ships in multiple scales, but they'd also had a, a full-scale ship that they built down in Rosarito Beach in Mexico. And just one side of it on a sinking rig and a huge water tank so that they could actually sink it with real people on it. But they had CG versions of the ship as well, which were incredibly detailed. They did a lot of motion capture of all the CG artists at DV uh, who became passengers on the ship. And they populated the entire deck of the ship, people walking around in the sunlight and sitting on deck chairs as some of the real first digital avatars. I was working on the film at POP Film, Pacific Ocean Post. We were doing a lot of CG elements. We were doing CG cavitation bubbles off the propellers underwater. We were doing a lot of traditional compositing, like the high overhead that starts down low and then raises up to a high shot of one of the lifeboats with one of the sailors paddling through this sea of dead bodies. The water in the tank only had 20 people in the water. And then there was a solid wall and he had a flashlight that was hitting the water and then hitting the dead wall behind him. We had to cut off the back half of the shot and extend that with CG water. So we got CG water from the Airtay software that they were using in digital domain. 
they animated that water for us and we were comping that into the background and then i was hand placing dead bodies all the way out and continuing the flashlight out into that water but when the flashlight had to hit the bodies they all had to light up and catch the light from the flashlight that was all fake there was a lot of traditional work on it and there was a lot of incredibly complex cg work on it in the middle of doing all that one of the producers came in and said we've got a bit of a problem we have this shot jim cameron wants to put in the international trailer which is due in one month we took it to ILM and they said the shot's impossible with the elements that we provided. So we took it to Digital Domain, which he owned at the time, and they said the same thing. So what do you think? I looked at them and I went, well, I guess it's possible. I mean, it's only time and money. And if you've got the money, I'll make the time. They went back to Jim and told him that. And he said, that's the correct answer. Give him the job. The shot is a 10 second slow motion shot of Jack and Rose running down the corridor toward camera with a wall of water chasing them down the corridor. What had been shot were two stunt doubles for Kate and Leo. They run right past camera. There's no getting away from the fact that neither of them look anything like Kate or Leo. It had to be a head replacement. They had shot Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio running down the hallway in dry set. But the problem was that in the live take with the stunt people, the lights are flashing on and off. And so they tried to help us by flashing the lights on and off when they did dry run, but none of the flashing matches because it's just some guy just doing a hand flicker. No one could say that the shots were done incorrectly because Jim Cameron was the camera operator. So take one, the first stunt guy ran in and in slow motion, we saw his foot slip and slam down against the wall and there were steel walls so they could take the pressure of the water dump from the dump tank that was coming from around the corner. He hit the wall, knocked out, unconscious, take two, new stuntman. I think his name's Steve, the guy who was the stuntman ultimately for Leo. They did that stunt and then I spent two and a half months making the shot. Their faces were ultimately completely hand-painted for 240 frames. I had to paint jiggle in their skin and eyebrows move performance into their face using some photographic elements as the base, but basically hand painting them completely and then painting all the light into them to make it match and hair flicking around in front of Kate's face and water splashes everywhere. And 17 hours a day, seven days a week for two and a half months, all hand painted on Inferno. You know, this incredibly powerful tool seized up and stopped working. I called Discrete Logic and said, guys, we got a problem. I can't even open the system. They didn't believe me initially. They ultimately came down from Montreal and had a look at it. And they went, oh my God, you've broken our color corrector. They had one week and they went back and they rewrote the color corrector to be able to handle the kind of requirements that I was putting into it. And that became the basis of the color corrector that's in flame now. Obviously, it's developed exponentially since then. So then I had one week left and I finished the shot and we shipped it off and Jim saw it. He was very happy. And that was a good thing. The coolest part of doing that shot for me was that it was total lockdown. Just let me concentrate on this thing. The only person who was allowed to come into the room was my boss, Alan Kozlowski, who owned POP. So one day I was working on the shot and this is a very quiet knock at the door. And Alan stuck his head in. He goes, hey, um, is, it, is it okay if I come in? I've got somebody I think you'd like, you'd like to meet. And I said, yeah, you know, when you're focusing on something, you just go, yeah, yeah, whatever, okay, come in. And you don't even turn around and pay attention. You just keep on doing what you're doing. And so they came in. I sensed somebody sit down next to me. I have a feeling I should stop what I'm doing and pay attention to whoever it is that's sitting next to me. And I turned around and it was George Harrison from the Beatles. Oh, my God. And he and Alan were old friends. Many people may not know is that George was an incredible film producer. One of the things that he's most well regarded for in film was that he funded all of the Monty Python films. So he was fascinated by technology and he knew about tablet technology, but he'd never actually seen it operating. And so he said, can I just watch you work? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, do you want to go? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, do you want to just try it out? You may as well, you're here. He said, okay, well, if you can just get me a blank frame, I'll just draw on that. And I went, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't believe I'm about to say this because I'm saying it to you, but 
No. If you want to do it, you got to work on this shot. <laughs> and he said, well, what do I do? And I said, well, it's frame 151 of the shot. There's a little highlight in the middle of Kate's forehead that needed to be painted. And I said, so just go to frame 150. And this is how you do that. Toggle between these two frames. Now, see where it's missing there and there. And this is the paint tool. And I showed him how to do it. And so he just painted the little highlight. He goes, oh, this is so cool. And I left it in there. So one of the Beatles worked on Titanic. <laughs> what a great story. Oh, my God. And he was such a lovely guy. And then he said, look, you've been working too hard on this. Come out into the lobby. And so we went out to the lobby and had a, a cup of coffee and talked for a couple of hours. And that was great. And then off he went. And I went back to work. A different George than the one we usually talk about. Yeah, exactly. How did this lead to ILM? Through the years in LA, I was approached a few times by ILM. I think initially probably from Steve's recommendation, because I'd been working in episodic television and commercials a lot. One of the things that that taught you was to work very, very quickly and very efficiently and to come up with the right idea first time, which went back to my years with Gary Emery in Melbourne. Unfortunately, every time ILM called me, I couldn't go because... I was already committed to some other project. And even though it was ILM calling me and that was my dream, I wasn't going to bail on the job that I was already doing because, you know, you give your word, that's what you do. So I kept on doing that for many years. I worked at ABC and then Digital Magic and then Pacific Ocean Post and then POP Film. And I left POP to work on Armageddon as the compositing supervisor. That was an unbelievably stressful experience of just coming up with a lot of work in a very, very short period of time. It ended up getting us an Academy Award nomination, which was wonderful, but it also kind of raised the focus on me as one of the artists out there. I was at Sony working on Seabiscuit. I finished on a Friday night and I was driving off the lot, having just finished that film. And I got a call from recruiting at ILM saying, look, hey, it's us. I know we've kind of done this to you before, but we're going to do it again. Is there any way you can be here on Monday? And I said, actually, yes. I went back to my apartment and I packed my bag and I drove up the coast and I had an uncle who lived in Petaluma, my mother's brother. Monday morning, I went to ILM to the old Kerner location, the real location. The job was master and commander and Pablo Hellman was one of the soups on that. I had trained in LA at Digital Magic. Oh. And then he went on to become Pablo Hellman, Academy Award nominated fabulous artist and supervisor. They had a sequence that ILM had been working on for a while. It was shot at midday, blazing sun. And Peter Weir, the director, had decided that he wanted to make it five o'clock in the morning in deep fog. <laughs> and, you know, you're on a ship's deck with shiny wood and brass fittings that are all shiny. And ILM had been working on it for a while and they were having great difficulty in solving the problem. Peter was getting a little frustrated by that. What are we going to do? And he says, we've done everything we can do. And he said, there's only one person I know who's crazy enough to even attempt this. You should give him a call. And so that was the call that I got. I They only had a box available at night over in E-Building, where the Sabre Department was, which was Discrete Logic Inferno. Got on the box, and in the first two hours, I solved the problem. I worked all night. The next morning, I was getting ready to leave. I came back to the room, and there's all these people in the room. This one short guy backs out of the room, and it's my old friend from Paramount, Fred Chamblett. And he goes, hey, it's my lovely buddy. Come in, meet Peter. And the director, Peter Weir, was there along with Jim Morris and a bunch of other people. I had idolized Peter since Picnic at Hanging Rock and The Last Wave, even though it was ILM. The reason that I really wanted to do that job at ILM was because I got to work with Peter Weir. He looked at it and he said, did you do this? And I said, yeah. He goes, this is bloody amazing, mate. And I said, does it do what you want it to do? He goes, oh, absolutely. Can you do this the whole sequence? It wasn't even a compositing thing. It was a color correction. One of the things that I had developed on Star Trek was using the color corrector as a compositing tool. I would ramp color all the way out to the point where you broke the shot. 
And then I'd selectively key different color levels out, take it all back in and undo it and make it work again. That was the solution for this one. And it did work. And so he turned to Jim Morris and he said, okay, so Jim, this guy, you're going to hire him full time right now. <laughs> so the four week gig that I went up to do at ILM, which was sold on the first night, became a full-time job. So I went up to do one gig. I left nearly five years later and 17 movies later, including Star Wars. <laughs>